In those days, a decree went out from Caesar, and so everyone went to their town to be registered. Joseph went up from Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem along with Mary. And when they were there, it came time for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloth, and laid him in a manger. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the field at night and keeping watch over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born. For you who is the Messiah, the Lord. My name is Noel, one of the pastors here, and if you were here last week, you know that I, I started a fight at the beginning of the service um, about who is the greatest you know, guitar player. That turned into the big fight. But uh, during the week, I found the bigger fight was over uh, which is the better um, uh, cinematic universe, the DC or the Marvel universe, and so many of you are wrong. Um, but what happened was, it got me kind of on this thing this week of kind of looking at the top list of things, and there's top list of everything, top Top eight of this, top 25 of this. In fact, there's a, a list of the top 25 most beautiful college campuses. Notre Dame makes three. If you've ever been there, that's complete baloney. And Michigan State didn't make the list, right? So can we all agree on that one, right? So I'm looking at all these top whatever lists, and, and I saw one, and it was the top eight Christmas movie cliches. So of course I had to click that one. And uh, I'm not gonna tell you what the first one is. Uh, does anyone have any guesses? The number one Christmas movie cliche. Uh, well, the cliche being the thing that is kind of like, how do I describe cliche? Um, it is the, what is that? It, it's the what? The meat cute? Oh, that's the cliche. Got it. Got it. I, was, I was describing the word cliche. I was trying to find cliche. No, meet cute. Well, that, no, close. Uh, let me do this. Um, all four of these movies have this cliche. Anyone got it? A cliche is, um, is a generalization about something that, that everything has it. It's the same. It's like... The kids are lost and trying to find their dads is really close. The number one Christmas movie cliche, according to whatever this list was, is dysfunctional families. <laughs> is that not amazing? I mean, think about this though. Um, I got thinking about this as the, the number one Christmas movie cliche. And the thing is, isn't it being dysfunctional what makes a family a family, right? To a degree, and I wonder if the dysfunctional family uh, becomes a functional family, sort of, but a lovable one at least thing, hits so hard because every single one of us can relate to a degree. <laughs> In fact, for some of us, it's why we can't stand Christmas because our family is too dysfunctional. And so everything between, you know, Thanksgiving and December 25th is, is sort of rough. And Christmases can be difficult when family dynamics are difficult. So we're in this series right now where we're looking at like various names that Jesus is given during the Christmas season. And today we hit on probably the most famous, in fact, you could call it the number one Christmas name of Jesus cliche, and that is that Jesus is Emmanuel. 
And that phrase, that word, Emmanuel, is precisely what we need at Christmas because it is the thing that makes dysfunctional functional. But the path to that function actually goes through, as we'll see in this Christmas story, some very, very difficult circumstances. In fact, this part of the Christmas story is the shortest one we're gonna cover here. You've already heard it read. It's only eight verses long. So let's just slow roll through this thing. Matthew 1, verse 18, says this. The birth of Jesus came about this way after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now, we covered this a little bit last week, but again, the the narrative of the story and the chronology of the story is that Mary already knows. She's been told by the angel Gabriel. So at some point, she has shared this detail with Joseph. This is how it kind of comes about. And for us, when we read this with 21st century ears, this whole thing, like a lot of the Christmas story has this scent of mythology to it, doesn't it? Because even those of us who say we believe in Jesus, we say we believe the Bible, we sort of have a problem with the supernatural stuff. We have a problem sometimes with the miracle stuff, and we just kind of want to skip over it. But here's the thing. If you're not down with miracles, you're not down with Christianity, because the whole thing is miracles. I mean, think about this. We believe that Jesus is God and always has been God, right, even before there was any creation, right? And that Jesus, that's a miracle, by the way. It's supernatural. Uh, Jesus then stepped into his creation and was born um, in the virgin birth, right? Uh, that's, That's a miracle. He lived a perfect life life. That's a miracle. Um, He died on the cross and somehow his death on the cross took the penalty for the sins that we deserve to pay. That's a miracle. Um, He then was buried and rose himself from the dead. That's a miracle. Um, And when we believe in him, Jesus himself um, sends the Holy Spirit to take up residence inside of us. So now God lives inside of us and begins to change us from the inside out, whether we like it or not. That whole thing is supernatural. So the virgin birth, par for the course. It's just right there in the middle of what Christianity says. So so the virgin birth, even though it is par for the course, it's still miraculous. It's still mind-bending. There's this legitimate miracle here that becomes the source of legitimate pain for Mary and Joseph. Last week, we looked at Mary's side of the story. Today, we're gonna look at Joseph's side of the story. There's an author by the name of Walter Wandering. He's one of my favorites. And he calls Joseph a common man that is caught up in cosmic affairs. You know, very, very little is known about Joseph uh, because very, very little is said about him in the Bible. This passage in Matthew, the eight verses we just covered, is really most of what we learn about him. (laughs) There's little bits at other places, but it doesn't record a single word that Joseph ever said. In fact, none of the gospel accounts actually record a single word that Joseph said. So what do we know about him? Look at verse 19. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Jesus, or Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, was a righteous man. So what is it in this story that gives us any evidence of him being righteous, in fact, other than us being told about it? Well, think about this for a second. Try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes if you can. Joseph knew where babies came from, right? He knew how babies were made. 
He was 100% certain beyond a shadow of a doubt he was not involved in the baby-making process of the situation that he's presented with. We, we, we all know that what that means, right? Now, you may find miracles hard to believe, but you could take uh, comfort in knowing that Joseph didn't believe in them either. He was a righteous man who didn't believe in this either, right? It's right there in the text because basically what it says is he heard about this, presumably from Mary, and then he decided, yeah, no matter what is going on here, I don't want any part of that because there's a couple options. She's a crazy person. That's option one. Option two is she has been sleeping around. Either one, not wife material, right? So he's like, I'm done with this situation. And so he logically concluded that he didn't want to be part of this. So as a good man, as a righteous man, he didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to shame her any more than she was already going to be shamed. And the reason the Bible uses the word divorce when it says he would wanted to divorce her quietly is in their culture, it would have been just as binding to be betrothed as to be married. And so think about it this way. Joseph would have become betrothed to Mary, and then he's a carpenter. He would have gone off and start building a house. So he'd start building a house for them to live in, and then there'd be this ceremony, and then they'd end up in the house, and then they'd consummate the marriage. But they were almost as married, married that entire time. They were building their life together already, even though he hadn't built the home with his bare hands yet. But for Joseph now, this is all over. And the evidence of Joseph's righteousness is how he handles Mary with tenderness. He must have been angry. How could he not be angry? He had to be livid about this situation, or at least confused, Right? I mean, his identity as a man would have been bruised, but he decides to divorce her quietly instead of publicly shaming her. Verse 20, but after he had considered these things, and by the way, that also can be translated as he considered these things. I think after is better. Um, I think he got to a point where he had just kind of considered the matter, settled it in his mind. We're told he's gonna divorce her quietly. He settles in, he lays down for bed, and an angel appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So after he considered these things, he goes to bed, right? And he spent time noodling on it. He made his decision. He goes to bed, angel appears. He had to ask the question, was it just the nachos? Because, I, because you know how that is, right? You lay down to sleep, right? And you've been thinking about something. Well, what do you dream about? The thing you're thinking about. And what was he thinking about? Mary said an angel appeared to her. So he's like, okay, 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 right? That whole thing is going on in his brain. But what happens is in this dream, this angel appearing to him, he, he confirms Mary's story that yes, she's a virgin. Yes, she's pregnant. It was legit. Let me just stop there. This is not an optional theological position. This is essential to Christianity. And the key is right there in verse 21. Let me reread it, and then we're gonna camp on 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. How does that right there tell us how important this theology is? Well, we hear this verse a lot, especially around Christmas time, um, but the richness of this moment is sort of lost on us. The angel is saying to Joseph, just as the angel had said to Mary, this child will be named Jesus. So, right? But think of it. The angel is saying to Joseph, you don't get to name your child. 
He was saying to Joseph, the patriarch of this new little family, you don't get to name your son, the one that you will raise like as your firstborn son. This is a huge deal in Hebrew culture because names in their world were massively significant. People didn't name their kids just because it was popular or because it was not popular, right? And they didn't name their kids with a unusual pronunciation just to throw everybody off. They, they didn't do any of those crazy things, right? What they did is they named their kids um, in a very particular twofold purpose. The first was to convey authority. Throughout the Bible, the, the one who gives a name is the one that has authority. So we see in Genesis, Adam is told, name the animals. You get to name the animals. You have authority in creation here. And so he is to name the animals. In Genesis, we see that God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. The Pharaoh named Joseph Zapanath Paneah, which is why we still call him Joseph. Um, and, this, and, and then the Pharaoh, what does he do? He, he had authority over Joseph, uh, Joseph and then Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And then Jesus takes Simon and he gives him the name Peter. And so naming someone is the prerogative of the one with authority. And the angel says to Joseph, you don't have that authority. That authority belongs to his heavenly father. And his heavenly father has named him Jesus. The second significance of names is often in the Bible, we see names are closely matching someone's calling and mission. You have to be a little bit careful here because sometimes a name is just a name. <laughs> um, but often when a name is not just a name, um, we're told what that name means. And this text tells us, isn't that what it says? Verse 21, it's right there. She will give birth to a son, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And here's the funky thing about that, that word Jesus. Jesus is the Latinized version of the Greekized version of the name Joshua, uh, which would in Hebrew been Yeshua. That's Jesus's name. So let's just break it down for a second. This is Yeshua. Jesus is Yeh, the Lord, which it is not a mistake that Kanye West wants to be known as Yeh. Okay, right. So Yeh, Shua saves. The Lord saves. That's Jesus's name. Jesus was to be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And this is one of my favorite parts. I mentioned last week, if you were here, you know that Mary is one of the most popular names in the history of the world because of Jesus' mom, Mary. Well, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, was one of the most famous boys' names in the first century. It was like a massively popular name. It's sort of like Josh now, right? By the way, if you were born between 1980 and 1990, there's a 2.2% chance if you're a boy, your name is Josh. Anyone here born between 1980 and 1990 and your name is Josh? Anyone? Uh, right there, see? 2.2% chance. I knew I had a good shot in the room, right? So there you go. And Jesus' name was like that. It was like, have you ever, you know, I, I talked with Josh this week and he's like, yeah, in first grade, there were like four of us in a class of 20. And I'm like, yeah, that's what Jesus, that's why they called him Jesus of Nazareth. Because people would be like, which one? The one from Nazareth, right? Je which Jesus? So we're gonna talk about that on New Year's Day, by the way. So check this out. The one with authority, God the Father, gives a person a name that describes their purpose. God the Father gives Jesus this name that says he will be the Lord who will save. I heard a pastor once say it this way, whose we are, the one with authority, 
determines who we are. Think about Jesus for a second. Jesus is and always has been the Son of God. This is what he is, is in the Trinity. Jesus is and always has been under the authority of the God the Father. Jesus, so the Father names Jesus and sets his purpose before him, and Jesus lives out that purpose. In fact, this is what jo Jesus would go on to say in John 6, verse 38. He said, uh, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And what is that will? Well, it's the next two verses. He said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those who he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This was Jesus' calling. He was to be Yeshua, the one who saves. So let's go back to that phrase that I just mentioned from that other pastor. He said, whose we are determines who we are. Think again now about who Jesus is, what his purpose is. Let me read just three quick passages. Psalm 24, verse one says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Colossians 1, verse 16 says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Whose you are determines who you are and this is vitally important. When we place ourselves at the center of our universe, everything will bend toward that. So every decision that we will make in our life will bend toward us being the center of the universe, who we are and who we think owns us. If it's us, then all of our pleasure will have pleasure or contentment or safety or the absence of pain. We'll do anything we can to serve that purpose. So if another person is the center of our universe, maybe a spouse or a child or Taylor Swift, all of our decisions will bend toward worshiping them, right? Or providing for them. But the reality is you're not your own. It says, C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity said this, I love it. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. That's whose you are. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. In other words, whether you acknowledge it or not, you belong to God. Every breath, every heartbeat, every relationship, every dollar belongs to him. So who are we? Well, the Bible gives us a word for who we are based on whose we are, and that is that we are stewards. We, a steward is someone, it's like a manager who looks after something that belongs to another. So in a very real sense, everything you do in your entire life is an act of stewardship. How you treat your physical body, how you love your neighbor, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy. Everything in your life is about stewardship. You are stewarding something that doesn't belong to you. And it should come as no surprise then that the Bible talks actually a ton about money as sort of a barometer of us figuring that out in our lives because there's almost no greater barometer of our priorities than how we steward the money that God has given us. 
And a lot of times we look at our, our account and we're like, well, I earned this. Yes, you did. And God gave you the ability to earn what you earned. <laughs> and every penny that you have is his. And so what are you doing with God's money? If you have a budget, which I hope you do, you can see what's important to you. You can look at your budget. You can look at your calendar. You can look at how you spend your time and your week and your energy. And you can know whose you think you are. There's a concept in the Bible that's called first fruits, and it basically reminds us that God should be our priority. He should get the first of everything, the first of our schedule, the first of our energy, the first of our time, the first of our money, that when Jesus is the first of everything, he gets the first before anything else, and then the rest of our life bends in, uh, toward him. But when something else always has the center, everything will bend toward that. So what happens is, uh, normally we think about whenever money kind of comes up in a church, we get, we get really awkward because we feel like God is just flipping the screen toward us and saying, I got a few questions for you to answer here. Um, and if you could just tap like, on the, the, the screen. And the problem is we, we feel that way and it feels like angsty to us. But the big question is, what, is, what are our priorities? Are we giving to support gospel ministry to take care of the poor? in our community, to be generous to those who are in need. It really betrays who is on the throne of our lives. We're stewards. We don't own ourselves. And so we as stewards and managers of everything God has, we can go now and look back to Jesus. Look at this in verse 22 and verse 23. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And what Matthew is doing here is he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, and you'll notice that he gives Jesus another title, Emmanuel. Is that right? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? It means God is with us. And as we've seen in the series, Jesus has a lot of names. So is his name Jesus? Yes. Is his name Emmanuel? Yes. Like he's got all these names, all these titles. And I love taking that name Jesus and putting it with that name Emmanuel as it is in this passage. Think about this. Jesus... Emmanuel means the Lord who is with us saves. There is so much that is packed into that. And I've been reflecting on that for the message. Think about this. Jesus came to save us, to be with us, to walk with us. Jesus was tempted as we are. He, he suffered as we do. He lived out his life under authority for the purpose of the Father. He knew whose he was, so he knew who he was. He spent his whole life for others. He spent the whole thing. His, his, the arc of his life was bent toward that purpose. But now for a second, I want to go back to the person that we have already forgotten about because we know so little about him, Joseph. <laughs> We've already kind of forgot we were talking about Joseph, didn't we? Joseph is hearing all of this for the first time. I mean, he'd heard it from, from Mary, but now he hears it from this dream, and that has to be absolutely jarring for him. Because if Joseph marries Mary, he's inviting shame onto himself. Everyone in, in his small community would know um, that she was pregnant before they got married. And that doesn't carry a whole lot of shame in our culture today, but it does carry a lot in, in theirs. And so Joseph knew whose he was. 
So he knew who he was. Look at this. When Joseph woke up, it's actually one of my favorite parts of that verse. Like he got up, he's like, I am in. I would have got up and thought, was it the nachos, right? <laughs> like, he's like, nope, I'm in. When he got up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until they gave birth to a son. And he named him. He placed himself under the authority of God and he named him Jesus. Think about what Joseph was doing in that moment. He gave up his right to direct his own life. He, he in, in the words of one author, he discovered within himself the miraculous ability to obey the word of God. <laughs> Joseph ranked his stepson over himself. He took suffering and shame. He gave up the right to a good reputation. He and Mary had what a lot of people would have looked at as a dysfunctional little family. <laughs> In fact, as I was reflecting on Joseph, it struck me that he pretty much disappears from the story shortly after this. He takes the family to Egypt. He, there's this, this encounter with they lose Jesus for a little bit and a whole thing. And then Joseph just kind of disappears. And most people believe that Joseph was older than Mary, that he probably died um, before Mary or before Jesus grew up. And so what we know is that Joseph just wasn't around. So he wasn't there to see Jesus's ministry. He wasn't there to see Jesus's miracles. He didn't get to see his son walk on the water. He wasn't there when his son was nailed to the cross and when he was buried. We know his mom was there, but Joseph wasn't there. He didn't see him get buried. He didn't get to see him raised from the dead. He didn't get to see him walk and talk and cook fish on the beach and tell Tell everybody, point everybody to God the Father. He didn't get to see his son become Emmanuel. He died before he saw the end of the story. He believed it, but he didn't see it. He closed his eyes one day in death, and he opened them in glory to see that his stepson, Jesus, was the Savior, the Lord that had come to save. When I was a little kid, I won an award in VBS or Sunday school or one or something. And the award was this like cheap uh, wooden frame that's made of plastic made to look like wood. And it had a piece of like parchment made to look like parchment. And it had a Bible verse on it. <laughs> and that, that piece of parchment in that Bible verse, it said, neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name given among men are given under given among men whereby we must be saved sorry it's the king james version and i'm just trying to picture the thing on my wall because night after night after night i looked at that as a little kid as i fell asleep there is salvation in no one else but jesus why because there is no other name under heaven that can save us only jesus jesus is the one who is with us. Jesus is the one who saves. That baby that Joseph named Jesus grew up and he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Why? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. I don't know what your Christmas story is gonna be like. 
I don't know if you're the person who wakes up on Christmas morning and runs down and cannot wait to spend it with the family. Or if you've had such a dysfunctional family background that this is a season of pain. Maybe this is a season where it's a first time without a loved one. I don't know what your Christmas is gonna be like, but this is what I know is true. If you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. That he will raise you up on the last day to be with him. And he's gonna introduce you to his stepdad, Joe, and his mom, Mary, a righteous dude, a poor young lady who grew up to see her son go to the cross. And that's what this Christmas season is all about. So let's, let's pray and then we'll continue. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that truth that all who believe in him will have eternal life and they will be raised up on the last day. And so we confess that we believe in you. Maybe for some of us in this room, this is the first time we've ever even considered these things. And so I just pray that today would be the day that some people in this room would believe in Jesus for the first time so that they will have eternal life and be raised up with him on the last day. We all pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.